Well, it's been so long, let's just read down through here and then we'll just pick up at the end because we're finally at the end. Well, verse 10 starts out, finally. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's what we're talking about, that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the deceits of the devil. We've talked about the fact that it's the power of God on our side against the tricks and deceits of the devil on the other side. It's not a fair fight as long as we understand who the combatants are and the weapons that we've been given. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Look to your left. Look to your right. They're flesh and blood. That's not your enemy. All right, that should have helped some marriages tonight. (laughs) But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Those are demonic spirits. Those are demonic spirits. We're going to talk a little bit on Sunday about that. Those are demonic spirits. When Satan rebelled in heaven, he took one-third of the angels with him. The Bible tells us in Revelation, it tells us in Isaiah, they were cast down to the earth. So they're here. They're in the heavenly atmosphere around. The Bible talks about several heavens. There's heaven where God lives, but there's a heaven that's the spiritual atmosphere around this earth. And they were cast down to that. All it takes is two chapters before we run into him in the Bible. Because God had created something perfect, something beautiful, something blessed, And Satan comes in to try to destroy it. And so we see he comes in to oppose God and the kingdom of God and the creation of God. And so he's still at work doing that today. And since we are his creation, since we are his children when we've come to Christ, we are his particular target. But the good news is, as I said in the prayer, we've been made more than conquerors through Christ. We're more than overcomers. He leads us in triumph. The good news, by the way, I read the end of the book. I peaked. I ended, read the end of the book and we win. He loses. All right? But between now and then, some things happen. Some stuff happens. Have any of you had stuff happen in your life? All right. Well, most cases it comes from him. Some cases it comes from us. Just our own stupidity. I mean, if you spend the day standing outside in the cool rain with your head uncovered, you get soaking wet, especially in the wintertime, and you don't come in and dry off and take care of you, and you get sick, it's not the devil, it's you. <laughs> it's being stupid. All right? So we don't, he gets a lot of credit sometimes for things we do. Uh, but he is there, he is real, and the Word of God says that, that, that we, he is an enemy. He opposes you. Now, there are some parts of the body of Christ who just kind of ignore him and they take the attitude, well, whatever happens must be God's will and God's trying to teach us something. God will teach you things through things he didn't create. He'll take them as teaching opportunities. As a father raising our children, there were sometimes just either I didn't handle a situation correctly. I remember going into it, taking our kids to a movie one time. I thought the movie was nice and safe. Well, about 10 minutes into the movie, some things began to happen I didn't want my kids I didn't want to see, let alone what my kids saw. So I said, okay, here we go. We get up and we watch out. But now what do I do? I mean, they'd already seen some things I didn't particularly want them to see. So I take this as a teaching opportunity. Now, I didn't create that on the screen. I mean, I didn't know that was going to go on. But I used it as an opportunity to teach them something. So not everything that happened, just because something God uses something in your life, doesn't mean He brought it into your life to teach you something. He may be using something you did. Right. 
He may be using something the devil attacked you with. So you don't always know where it's coming from, although we have some indications from the Word of God. But the point is there's an enemy out there, and we're talking about spiritual warfare. So let's go on and quickly read down here, because if you want to know the rest of this, you're going to go back, and we're going to put this together in a, in a, in a binder like we did, as we did with uh, the, the faith series. Okay, verse 13. This is what we're to do. Therefore take off the whole armor, all of it, the entire armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shot or put on your feet the preparation or the foundation of the gospel of peace, having taken up the shield of faith, which which able you to quench the fiery darts of the evil one, and taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying with all manner of prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It's a mouthful. All right, we've gone through these different parts of the armor of God, and essentially what we said about them is they are basically attributes of God. It's really saying, put Him on. When you come to Christ, you've been joined to Christ, united with Him, made one with Him. There's so many promises in the Bible and provisions in the Bible and statements in the Bible about who you are and what you can do, but they're all linked to this critical phrase of in Him or through Him or by Him because we've been joined to Him. In several places, the Apostle Paul says, to put him on. You can't put on something you don't have. And so this is nothing more than putting him on in that spiritual battle because the temptation is to fight them in your own efforts, to react, to strike back. I had a situation come up this week where there was a threat. Again, nothing here in the church. It wasn't even a personal threat. This is against something that I'm responsible for overseeing. And it was just a report I got that somebody had done something that, that was going to threaten the value of a family asset. And, and I, just, I found myself getting all mad and wanting to go to court over it until I just went out and calmed myself down. Those old juices start going. And I do calm, calm down, John. You're, re, you're reacting. Almost always reactions are going to get you in trouble. We're to respond, not react. When you react... The person or the situation that caused it is controlling. When you react to somebody, what they say or situation, they're controlling you. When you respond, you're choosing what you're going to do as a result of what they've done or said. You're in control. And when you respond, you give God an opportunity to do what He wants to do and to say what He wants to say. And I'll just save you, save you a lot of grief. I'll give you the benefit of 30-some years of experience. He's smarter than you are. Because I found out he's smarter than I am. And I'm assuming you're smarter than you are also. So we've looked at these different attributes. We're not going to go through. And now in verse 17, we've looked at, it looked at putting on the helmet of salvation. And that kind of led us on a sidetrack of renewing the mind. So we spent a number of weeks, actually several months, on renewing the mind. Now we're going to bring this to a close. And the last part of this armor that we're to take up is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now each of these is a piece of a, a Roman officer's, a Roman soldier's armor. Now, we just happen to be blessed tonight. We don't have this for the other pieces. But John Zabrowski 
months ago in anticipation of this night. <laughs> Let me borrow this. This is a replica of a Roman sword. And they would wear this on their side like that, either on a belt, the belt we've seen here, or on a harness. And when they got in battle, they had a shield in front of them, but they also had a buckler, which was a round, small thing, about the, about the, the diameter of a, of a yardstick. And they would use this thing. This was their offensive weapon. And this thing was designed to be extremely sharp, two-edged, with a groove in the middle, and they would, underneath this buckler, they would shove it forth into the belly section, the abdomen of their adversary, and therefore that would be a lethal lunge. So when it talks about the sword, this is what it's, this was what Paul was thinking of when he used this. Now it, it's in Isaiah, and it's in other places, the sword of, the, of, of a two-edged sword. But this is a good replica of it. I may use this for some counseling appointments. John, I may need to borrow it a little longer. <laughs> there he is back there. Some marriage counseling. <laughs> Thank you for letting me use that. But the other day when I was kind of looking this over, thinking forward to today, something went off in me about it. Now, what is a sword designed to do? It's designed to cut this, of all the things we've seen in here and read in here, this is the only offensive weapon. The belt is not offensive. By offensive, you know what I mean? I don't mean offend somebody. I mean assert yourself. Go on the attack. A belt just is holding your pants up, <laughs> your, your weapons up. And the, 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 the shoes are, are not an offensive weapon. And the shield is not an offensive weapon. The helmet's not an offensive weapon. The, be- the bre- breastplate of righteousness is not an elf- offensive weapon. This is the only weapon to strike back. Everything else is designed to protect you. But notice what the goal is here. If you go back up into verse 13, it says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Notice the goal here isn't to destroy our enemy. That doesn't happen to the end of the book. You're not going to kill the devil. And you're not going to kill demons. They have, they, they have a punishment awaiting them. That's not our job. Our job is to make his enemy under his footstool. And the whole goal of this armor and in our spiritual warfare is not to allow the enemy to stop us from accomplishing God's will. Because we can become distracted. That's one of his devices. Because remember, it's the wiles of the devil, the tricks of the devil. One of his devices is to distract us from finishing our goal and what we're assigned to do. That's what it's all about. Heard a wonderful example of this last year out at Lafayette Scales Ministers Conference. There was a pastor out there who's got a fairly large church and was ministering to some of the, to all of us, and on, in a morning session where it was attended only by by ministers. And um, he was said I was sharing with a pastor who was struggling with issues in his church, 
And he said, this example came to me, and it was so good because it just kind of followed something I'd gone through where I had realized that this is what was happening to me. He said, when you're a pastor, it's as if you're a, a school bus driver. He says, you're driving a bus somebody else owns. And in that bus, there, you've been assigned people that are not yours either, but they're in your custody and charge, and your responsibility is to take these people in this bus to somewhere you're assigned to take them. So your job is to safely get the people in the bus where they're supposed to go. Now, in the process of opening the door and letting people on, especially in warmer weather where the windows are open, flies can get in. And he said, what happens is you're driving along and... But when you do that, you've just taken your hands off the wheel, your eyes off the road to kill a fly that can't do any harm. One of Satan's names is Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. One of his techniques is to send flies into your bus and distract you. But, but this thing is annoying to me. That's why he's there. He's there to annoy you. But that's why you can't react. You've got to always have in mind, what is my calling? What is my purpose? And is this thing distracting me from that purpose or enhancing the accomplishment of that purpose. So what we've learned here is that he has distractions and devices and they're very real. They can be painful. They can be very hurtful. Some of what I was dealing with when this example came along was, was very rarely does something just get under my skin. But there have been some things that got under my skin and it just began to irritate me and I find myself reacting to people in ways I would not normally which means something's off inside by the way if you start reacting I've learned when I start reacting I start, something's wrong in here because when I'm not peace in here I can put up with all kinds of things when my, when my patience gets thin that means something's wrong in here and so, so I, I had to go back and look at what this was and I realized I was, I was getting distracted by little flies Little flies compared to what my assignment is. My assignment is to take this bus to the end of the course safely. And so that's part of the lesson here. So the goal here isn't to destroy the enemy. The, the goal here is to not be distracted or, or, or put off track by him. So that's why you notice it says our goal is for this armor so that we can withstand not defeat him, withstand in the evil day. And if you don't know the goal, you'll get frustrated because you're not going to kill him. <coughs> then why do we need an offensive weapon to drive him away from us? To take this thing, and although the Romans used it to kill, we're to use it to keep poking him back out of the way. With the shield of faith in place, 
with the breastplate of righteousness there, the helmet of salvation, our feet nice and safely, strongly secured. Now we've got to drive him back. Oops, I almost lost track. Lost it. Oh. <laughs> we've got to drive him back. <laughs> we might have to have a healing service here unexpectedly. <laughs> See, I, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood back. <laughs> I better put this down. I may be dangerous. <laughs> I hope I made the point, no pun intended. Actually intended. All right. But here's the trick. The trick. Here's, the, here's the, the insight we need. This is a spiritual warfare. So the enemy that we're driving back is a spirit or spirits. So the weapon that we're going to use has to be a weapon that's effective in that realm, not this realm. You following me? Okay. So this weapon that we've been given is called the, is called the sword of the spirit. What that means... I'll be careful. I just can't stay away from this, John. What that means is this, is this is a sword you can see, feel, taste, smell. So we know this sword is in the natural realm. So this doesn't do any good against spirits because they're not in that realm. Pose. <laughs> So there has to be a sword that does the same thing in the spirit realm. There has to be a weapon that accomplishes the same result in that realm that this one does against flesh in this realm. But remember, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. If we were fighting against flesh and blood, this is what you'd want. But the weapon, the, the enemy that we're fighting against, this won't do any good to because they're not made of flesh and blood. They're made of, they're spirit beings made of the spirit. So therefore, this weapon has to be a weapon that's effective in that realm just as this weapon would be effective against a human body. All right, maybe I can finally put it down now. So what is that weapon? Keep reading. It is the Word of God. God's Word in the hands of the Spirit of God operates the same way that sword would in the hands of a Roman soldier to drive back their enemy. Second Corinthians 10.4 says, and we've looked at it before, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of the flesh, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Galatians 5.19 tells us what the works of the flesh are. Let's just turn quickly there, because these are weapons we can't use. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. All right, we're not going to use those. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. That's reacting and getting mad and losing your temper. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, just in case yours aren't in there. So there's symptoms or indications when we're reacting in the flesh. Let's put it this way. Whatever your flesh wants to do is going to be wrong. And it won't work. In fact, you'll fall into the enemy's trap. All right. Because we're fighting in the realm, spirit realm, we need a weapon, an offensive weapon as a sword that's going to be used in that realm. And we're going to see that is the word. So the, the sword that the spirit uses is the word of God. The battle is done by the spirit. Only he has enough power to defeat our, to, to drive back our spiritual enemy. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face or the surface of the waters. This is the image in the original Hebrew that's created there. Is you have the earth is void. It's, it's here, but it's formless is what that word means. Now there's two theories of that. One is it's being recreated here. I'm not going to go into those differences in theories because they're really not important to what we're talking about here. But, but suffice it to say, the earth itself exists, but it's in chaos, it's disorder, there's no form here. God's about to create what we now know. And the spirit, the word hovering, is the image of like a chick hovering over um, a hen, mother hen, hovering over her chicks. It also has the image of, it doesn't mean this literally, but it's, if, if, if there was a gas leak in here, the room would have gas in this room, gas in, in the air here, whether it's natural gas or it's, it's gasoline fumes. They're not doing any harm at this point, but all the potentials there, once it's ignited, the power of that gas would be released in this place. So that gas, that cloud of gas, that power to destroy, in that case, is hovering over, waiting if it's ignited with a match. Boom! That power is released. Because the Spirit of God here is the power of God, and He's hovering over. He, he's not doing anything. He's waiting to act. Now let's see what releases Him. Let's see what it is that ignites that power. We're talking about when God created this. Verse 3. Then God what? God what? Said. He spoke. What is the sword of the Spirit? The Word 
of God. God's Word spoken. The power of God to create this spirit, this natural material realm was present in the Spirit of God. But it was released when God spoke words. The Word of God released the power of the Spirit of God to carry out those words. He takes the Word of God and He carries it out. He is the power of God that brings into reality what God says. He is just waiting for God to speak to release that power. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 4. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, that sounds good, to be tempted by the devil. Whoa. What's that about? Didn't Jesus tell His disciples from the prayer He taught them, lead us not into temptation? He's not talking about the same thing. Jesus has been sent here with a commission. I don't want to take the time to go into the full explanation of this. But Jesus, of course, before he was born in Bethlehem, he was the second person of the Godhead who's always existed. But John chapter 114 says at that point he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now I'll say this much. The only thing that will ever get you in trouble is your flesh. So now God's wearing flesh he's never worn before. So that flesh has to be tested so that he learns how to use it. Hebrews, I think it's 5, says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered and went through. He learned it. So I mean, he could disobey God. Well, he could have once he put on flesh. So he had to learn how to operate in this thing just like you and I do. The difference is he didn't fail. That's how he could become a faithful high priest. See, he can be a good high priest because he knows what you go through because he's had to struggle with the same stuff. But he can be a good high priest because he's overcome those things. So not only can he understand your struggles, he knows how to help you to overcome them. So that's one of the reasons. Satan came to test him, to tempt him. He came to test Peter. And he'll test you. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he became hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If, oh, this is just how the devil talks, If you are the Son of God. He starts with questionings. Nothing wrong with questions to learn things. It's when we start questioning God. Genesis 3 he started with, Has God said. So he doesn't like the word of God. 
He doesn't like it. He challenged it in the very beginning to get her to separate Eve and Adam from the Word of God. Because he knows what that Word will do. So he had to challenge that Word by saying, has God really said He's trying to separate them from that Word to try to handle the situations on their own apart from God's Word? And the moment they start doing that, they've lost because they're not equipped to handle things on their own apart from God's Word. And guess what? Neither are you and neither am I. Then why don't we spend more time in it? Instead of just turning to it as a resource when we get in trouble. Maybe if we spent more time in it, we wouldn't get in so much trouble. Well, that's just a thought to think about later on. All right, we don't want to go there. I know we don't want to go there. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bred. Now remember, verse 1 says, these are temptations. So if you think of Jesus the way I was kind of trained in, in church when I grew up in churches that weren't saved, we kind of think that Jesus could just do anything He wanted. Nothing ever bothered Him. Nothing ever, you know, He really wasn't human. And if He really wasn't human, these aren't temptations. The only way they can be temptations if he's also human as well as God. In other words, if he can be... In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, he was tempted in all ways as you and I are. That means those temptations had to be real to him. That means he got fed up with people. You can see it sometimes. Oh, how long do I have to put up with you? You could just... There's emotion in what he said. He wasn't quoting scripture or making scripture. He was expressing himself and his emotion. God does have emotion. And so, so he, he's being tempted here. This first temptation is, to, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. And medical science will tell you, after a point of fasting, your hunger goes away. But then when starvation begins to kick in, that hunger returns again. So that's about where he was. He was getting hungry and Satan waits for that opportune time when his flesh is weak and he's trying to approach him and trying to trap him. Remember, he uses deceit, the wiles of the devil, which means what he looks like he's trying to do for him is not what he's trying to do for him. He's not trying to do anything for him. If you are the Son of God, so the subtle way, if you are the Son of God, To answer that question directly is to acknowledge that he has the right to question who Jesus is. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, when Eve was tempted, this same devil came to her and says, Has God said? And you know what she did? She tried to defend God. That wasn't their instructions. I've read, I've read the first two chapters. Nowhere in there does God give them the responsibility for defending Him. And guess what? He hasn't given it to you or me either. He can take care of Himself. He's not insecure. He's not worried what people think of Him. He doesn't have an inferiority complex or a inferiority complex. He's very secure in who he is. He knows who he is. We do not have to defend him. Our call is to go share the good news about him, not to defend him. 
And Satan will use people, use situations to bait us into getting into arguments. I know I've done it, especially when we were first saved. I got into this huge argument with my brother-in-law because I was we got because I would just been saved and he's threatened by we're threatened by what we've happened to us and I'm all my legal skills all my philosophy training all that debating skills just dumped all over him and I won the argument and it took years in fact we still really can't discuss some of these issues with them 30 years later because of my big mouth because I didn't know any better it was a device of the enemy to destroy my testimony with them. Device. So how did Jesus handle it? Now he's dealing with a spirit. So he doesn't pull out a sword like that and stab him. Instead he pulls out the spiritual sword and stabs him by saying he doesn't defend it, debate it, argue it, he simply says, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, period. Doesn't add to it, doesn't take away from it. He just takes God's word and speaks it. Because when he speaks God's word, just as when God spoke his word in Genesis 1, the Spirit takes that word like a sword and jabs at the enemy. Well, he came back again. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into a holy city, set him on a pinnacle of a temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, now he's going to, now the devil's going to quote scripture to him. Imagine quoting the word to the word. Oh, the devil's bold. So if he'll do that, he'll say anything to you and me. So now he's going to try him with scripture. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus doesn't say that scripture is taken out of context. Jesus doesn't say, I know other scriptures. Jesus just stands there with the word and says, it is written. When he speaks those words, the spirit in the spirit realm takes those words and jabs at the enemy and pushes him back. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now the devil's a persistent dude. If he persisted with Jesus, just imagine how he'll persist with you when we give him cause to hope, have hope that we might quit at some point by things we've said. The devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus answered and said, Away with you, Satan. It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil died. He didn't? Well, you think if Jesus stuck him, he died. 
Oh, no. He left him. He left him. Some translators say for a season. See, the goal isn't to kill him. It's to get him to leave you alone so you can finish what you're called to do. So Jesus fought against Satan with all the knowledge he had and all the things he could have said. He only said a scripture back at him. Now, Jesus, knowing all he knew and all he could have said and all the arguments he could have gotten into, because remember, he said in Luke 10, 19, he said, I saw him fall out of heaven when this battle first went on. So there are all kinds of things he could have said. He could have said, I know where you're going to end up. He could have said, I saw you fall. All the stupid stuff we say. He just said, it is written. Because when he speaks those words, the Spirit now takes those words and those words become his sword to drive the enemy away. Okay. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at what this word can do. Verse 8, because we're going to bring this down to us. Well, let's go to verse 5. Then that Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that's a Roman officer, with a Roman sword, like this one. A centurion came to him pleading, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, <clears throat> dreadfully, torment, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Notice that was his immediate response before he said what he wanted him to do. So before the centurion gets the chance to finish asking him what he wants him to do, Jesus' reaction when he hears the need is, I'll come and heal him. When you ask him, his first reaction is, I'll come. Do you have to talk him into coming? In fact, the centurion has to talk him into not coming. See, religion teaches you you've got to beg and plead and say things just the right way and do just the right things. The centurion's not planning on him coming to his house. But all Jesus hears is, my servant's lying home suffering greatly. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion has to talk him into not coming. Some of you will need to think about that. I'll come in healing. Verse 8, the centurion answered and said to him, Lord, this is so powerful in here, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Don't, we're not going to talk about that right now. But speak a word and my servant shall be healed. Speak what? The word. Now get this. Where this happens is somewhere over here. The centurions come along or Jesus is coming along, the centurion comes to him and says, Lord, my servant's suffering at home, greatly paralyzed, greatly suffering. Jesus says, I'll come. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. I don't need you to come. All I need you to do is to say the word here. 
and my servant over here will be healed. In other words, you don't need to come all the way over here and lay your hands on my servant because it's not the laying on of hands that does it. I don't need you to do that because I understand something. All you need to do is to... That's what we're talking about. The sword of the Spirit because what that... He's afflicted with demonic spirits. Say the word here. And my servant will be healed over here. Now why does he have that understanding when everybody else that comes to Jesus doesn't? Verse 9. For I, key word in here, also. I also am a man under authority. He's a Roman centurion, like a captain in the army. He's under superior officers' authority. So he understands what it's like to be under authority, but somehow... He sees something about Jesus where he recognizes that he is also under authority. In John's Gospel, we get a clear understanding of this because Jesus said, I only do. I only do the things I see my Father doing. I only say the things I hear my father say. Everything, I only do the things that are only do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, I have no will of my own. He had a will of his own because we know in the garden he had to put it aside. But he took that will in every situation and submitted it under the father's authority. Now there's a little side lesson in this. Psychologists might look at him and say he's got a serious problem. He has no identity of his own. He has no ambition of his own. He's, he's got some problems here. He's a papa's boy. He only does... He, has no, he, no, he doesn't think for himself. The interesting thing is he's the freest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Now, it's, I don't think it's there anymore, but the court, some of the courthouses in Massachusetts, the old ones used to have engraved over them, obedience to the law is freedom. Isn't that good? The people that walked in the door never looked up that high. So I don't think they've replaced that language with the newer courthouses. So here's what happens. I also am a man... In other words, just like you, I'm someone under authority. And here's how I know... And then and, and he says... And and I'm also under authority, and I have soldiers under me. In other words, I'm in authority. So I'm a soldier. I'm an officer. There are men above me and men under me. I am under someone's authority, and I'm in authority over others. In other words, the superior officer's authority flows through me to the men who are under me. I'm a conduit 
a link in the chain of command for that same authority from the top general to be carried out by the lowest soldier and I'm a captain in that chain of authority. This is important. And here's how I know I'm in authority. This is so simple. Because I say to this soldier, go. And he goes. I don't have to discern whether he got my will or not. He did what I said. And I say to another, come. And he comes. It's too really simple. We don't have to discern, well, was that God, was that my captain or not my captain? They knew his voice. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. So he's saying to Jesus, you don't, you don't need to come over there. It's not your presence that's necessary. It's not your hand touching my servant that's necessary. It's the power and authority of his word coming out of your lips. So the chain of authority is God the Father has spoken. And we don't have time to go back into the Old Testament and see some of the things he'd spoken. When they're spoken on Jesus' lips, that same authority now passes because in the spirit realm there's no distance and there's no time. Passes over and whatever's afflicting the body of this servant has to respond because the authority that's on his lips is the authority of the creator of the universe who made everything by his words. So everything's subject to his words. Except you and me. (laughs) Who have our own free will. Who can say no. Now look at how Jesus, his response to this. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. There are not many places it says he marveled. And said to those who followed, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith. Now, I haven't gone through and done a thorough study, but my recollection is there are only two places I remember where he talks about great faith, and neither of them were Hebrews. There was the Roman officer and a Syrophoenician woman, Gentiles, who understood something about him that he called great faith. I have not found such great faith Not even in all of Israel. Now guess who's standing around him? His staff. I say to you, many will come from the east and west and sit at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast. In other words, the unbelieving Jews will be cast into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you believe, let it be done unto you. Now, all you've got to do is go down a few verses and they get out in a storm. Starting in verse 23. When he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly a great tempest or storm arose in the sea. So the boat was covered with waves. It's not just rough. The waves are covering the boat. But he's asleep. But to see, he's under perfect authority. He who dwells 
in the secret place of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. When you're there, you can be at peace. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. His disciples came to him and woke him and said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. In other versions it says, don't you care about us. And look what he says to them. Why are you fearful? Uh, uh, Duh. The waves are breaking over the boat. Why are you fearful? And not in this version, but in other versions, Jesus said, said, let us get in the boat and go to the other side. He'd spoken what they were going to do. Having spoken it, he went to sleep. Because the Bible says faith rests. They weren't in faith. They're going by what they see, so they're panicked. By the way, when you can walk on water, it doesn't matter whether the boat sinks or not. The boat's kind of a nice add-on, but it's not necessary. Don't remember, one of the other guys walked on water too. Notice what Jesus says about them. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? So in one chapter, in one daytime, a centurion officer, no covenant with God, has been told he has such great faith. Jesus is criticizing all of Israel based on the faith of this man and his own staff. He says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith. They had experience with him. They'd seen him do things. They'd seen him do things. But the centurion lived his life under the authority of someone's word and he exercised the authority with words. We'll go into one other thing and then we'll end for here tonight. What's this all about? Let's go to Matthew 16. Because this authority has been given to the church, been given to you and me. Matthew 16, 19, talking to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys represent authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Literally in the Greek, the tense is such that it's saying, whatever you bound on earth, bind on earth will be as if it's already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be as if it's already been loosed in heaven. Now go to verse eight, chapter 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, again, it's that same way, will be as if it's already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be as if it's already been loosed in heaven. What's he saying here? He's saying, heaven will back up your words. Heaven will back up your words if they line up with the words of the supreme authority. So when Satan comes at us and pressures us, The offensive weapon we've been given is to take this word and do exactly what Jesus did. Say, it is written. And then just say what it says and that's it. 
Don't yell, scream. You don't have to. The power. See, you're taking the word and you're putting. I like this. You're putting the sword. I'll be careful. You're putting the sword in his hand. Just like when David took those stones and threw them in the air. Those stones, if you study it, they went in the air. But God took those stones and drove them down through that bronze helmet. David didn't throw those stones through the bronze helmet because they had to go over the, the, over the, 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 the shield of his armor bearer. They had to go up in the air and come down. So they only had the force of gravity coming down. That's not enough to drive a rock through a bronze metal plate into the skull of that big giant's head. It took a force greater than the gravity of those stones, the inertia of those stones. But when he released those stones, it was like Jesus saying, it is written, when you speak this word... You are putting a sword in the hands of the Spirit of God and He fights in the realm where the enemy is. When we handle it in our own effort, we're fighting with carnal weapons against a spiritual foe and there's no contest. There's no contest. Well, I think next time we may pick up here. Uh, I mean, because this is too important. I'll end by saying this. Of all the things I've dealt with in my own life in terms of faith and doing things by faith, and of all the things in all my years of ministry and experience, the area where I believe most Christians fall short is in this area. A lot of times we really do believe the Word of God, but the problem isn't so much, isn't so much what we believe, although that is an issue. The real problem is what's located halfway between your nose and your chin. The importance of our words cannot be overemphasized. The power that God has given to us to release spiritual forces with our words cannot be overemphasized. And we are so careless about what we say. And I believe that may be one reason why Jesus said, in the day of judgment, we're going to ask to give an account for every idle word. That word idle means words that did not produce results. The safest way to produce results is to speak His word. Nothing less and nothing more. Just remember this. The only way to push that enemy back isn't to get angry at him, isn't to get frustrated at him, it isn't to call him names, he just laughs at you. What he cannot handle, what he's never been able to handle, is the Word of God spoken in faith. That's what got you saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He did everything he could to oppose you getting saved. And when you spoke the name of Jesus, He couldn't stop you. All of hell couldn't stop you. Next time, we're going to look at some things Jesus taught His disciples about speaking to things. And we're going to see a picture in heaven of where a man did that. And we're going to see a glimpse of what happened 
when he spoke words and what happened in the spirit realm. Oh my goodness, what time got away from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your grace and goodness. We thank you, Father, for your word that gives us instructions and understanding. Now help us, Father, to begin to apply this in our life. Give us wisdom and discernment to recognize those things in our life that are the enemy opposing us and help us to put on your member, to put on your armor, and especially to take the word of God, your word, and speak to those situations so that the spirit of the living God can move our enemy out of the way so that we can go on and accomplish what you've called us to do. And we thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.